You're listening to the Screaming Pods Network. We must search for what is truth. You doubt me. Seek proof. What is truth? And what is God? The first duty is to the truth, whether it's scientific truth or historical truth or personal truth. Then here is the proof you seek. You don't really want an answer to that question. responsible for probably one of the most well-known worship songs in the last decade. John Mark McMillan has remained, above all else, a storyteller. Hey girl, let's go down, wash our hands in the Carolina tide. Let's go down and die and come back like me. Girl, let's go down, wash our sins in the muddy brown waves. Wash the world away and come back again. Focusing his songwriting on seeing God through the human experience, he has dodged the trappings of many Christian artists throughout his career and has remained an artist with honesty and integrity. I've been chasing God I've been chasing Mercury and lightning I've been pressing hard I've been coming up short Lately I've been thinking about What's gonna happen with you and I I need a new religion Or I need a new This integrity is most apparent on his newest album, Mercury and Lightning, as he pulls from his own experiences as well as Roman mythology. I don't trust a fool, I don't trust myself, I don't want to bother you. All of my doubt and regret, said I wouldn't bear you. Promise that I'm doing my best, but I think I'm losing my head, losing my head. Themes range from wrestling with faith, politics, embracing the big questions, and finding our own place in this gigantic universe. From the badlands as a child, where the dust devils dance on the dreams of the ivy wild. In places you grow up, the tumbling ground is rolled. There is no domestic heart So what have we become? Just pedestrian There is no domestic heart The will to love Is hidden within us And we reckon with it And we wrestle with it The will to love Is hidden within us And we wrestle with it And we wrestle with it 
complementing Mercury and Lightning are two EPs, the Mercury Sessions and the Lightning Sessions. Taking the songs of Mercury and Lightning and reimagining those songs with new acoustic and symphonic arrangements and collaborating with artists like Joy Williams and Propaganda. It came on a Sunday, hazy and draped in irony. And it darkens the horizons, akin to white men touching down on Incan shores, akin to Babylon kings knocking on Daniel's door, home, no longer home. You could take the wings of the morning and attempt to fly where? When your wings are subleased and someone has bought the air, you tell me. We're just trying to feed our kids. Trying to feed our kids. And you could chant down the occupier. When the empire strikes back, you could try to set a forest fire. But how you gonna get your home back? When your whole home is in crisis, but what's the price you pay when the home prices are priced you out, homes? Where is here? Somewhere between citizen, prisoner, and refugee. When we ain't crossed the border, border, border crossed me. We ain't crossed the border. Border crossed me. Today, John Mark McMillan joins me to discuss his faith journey, the great mystery of the universe, and trying to break down the walls of tribalism that separate us from those we disagree with. I'm Sean DeRegger, and welcome to the Armchair Philosopher. With me today on the Armchair Philosopher, very excited to talk to John Mark McMillan. Welcome to the show, good sir. Yeah, thank you, man. Thank you for having me with you. So uh, at the point of this recording, you're about to set out on a tour. And, uh, you know, things are always a whirlwind when a band's getting ready to go on tour. And I wanted to highlight the tour really quick before we get going on our conversation. But it's called the Body, is a Body and Ghost Tour? Body and Ghost Tour, Yes. Who else is on that tour? It's uh, Tyson Motzenbacher, Mike Maines, Audrey Assad is doing a couple of dates, and my wife uh, will be singing with me on about two-thirds of okay. the dates and doing some of her songs, too. Very, very cool. So uh, it, it's funny because in if you've list, if people, people who've listened to the show before uh, know that when I was kind of going through my, my, my stuff, my deconstruction, uh, reconstruction, all that stuff... I, I, I ran from uh, contemporary Christian music, anything involved with that. So, uh, so it's 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 always funny that I kind of come back around and end up talking to people who, in in one way or another, were involved with that. And you still are very much uh, uh, involved with uh, the Christian music industry in a way. You're a little more independent now. But uh, I got to say, man, um, your new album and then the two subsequent kind of uh, like follow-up EPs, like re restructuring of some of these songs are just fantastic. And they kind of pulled me back in to checking out your stuff again. And then I, I totally had uh, forgot that you'd wrote that uh, very popular praise song, How He Loves. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, it's that guy. Is that John? He wrote this song. So uh, I, I just want to congratulate me, you, man, on on these these albums. These recent albums are just fantastic. And, and the way that you and these two EPs can go song by song and you have a little uh, commentary on them. It's just, it's just great. So I just want to thank you for those albums. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. So uh, I wanted to talk about kind of a brief 
biography kind of about where you came from. Um, so I, I know that you came from a Christian family, you were raised in the church. Um, what? So it's always it's always a hard setup to be like, well, tell me your life story, man. <laughs> you know, like, we don't we don't, you know. And but I but I think um, I wanted to like where where when I guess up to the point of when you wrote how he loves and it can't you wrote it it was independent and it kind of just blew up from there. Yep. Uh, as far as your Christian background and things like that, where what kind of brought you to that point? I guess. I mean, I was writing songs. I went to sort of a Christian ministry type of wasn't a college, just like a ministry school, church ministry school. And I um, grew up listening to all kinds of music, but I got involved in worship music in the 90s, and it was really fun and weird in the 90s, the wor- mm-hmm. worship music. And um, and and it's like anything went, you know, anything was possible um, or <laughs> anything was allowed, it seemed like, musically and and it was a lot of fun. So I was writing songs. I think I started writing songs. Um, well, I wrote songs before this, but I didn't want to play other people's worship songs. And so I started writing my own worship songs. I think that was one of the rules, is you had to write your own songs if you were going to be um, on the worship team. You know, and <laughs> At this point, I'd been in bands that didn't work out. And so worship music was my um, sort of my outlet. And it was my passion in a sense. Like I don't know, it was, I had this uh, I had this idea early on that worship didn't have to be entirely a utility. It could also be uh, art. There could be an artistry to it, you know. And I was gonna try to do that. But so I tried writing songs, and none of them were very interesting to people, um, or um, were rarely interesting to people until I went through this huge breakup with a girl and I was depressed and I stayed up late every night. I didn't have a job and luckily I had a friend who had a house. We were paying next to nothing to live in his grandmother's old house. She had just moved out of and we were basically staying there to make sure no one broke in. And I think supposedly we were fixing the house up, but I didn't have a job. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a relationship. Um, And uh, I was super depressed. I would stay up late at night and sing songs, write songs, sit on the porch and um, listen to the, city and write songs and so i wrote some of my first songs first interesting songs in that environment and i sort of writing songs worship songs and other types of songs became my way of coping maybe coping isn't the word just way my way of dealing or um working through um my problems mm-hmm. um therapy my therapy um and so that's that's sort of how i started writing worship songs and so i had a friend pass away he got killed in a car accident mm. and so i was sort of in that place again and i couldn't sleep um and i would stay up writing songs and i wrote the how he loved song one of those nights right after he passed away or i wrote most of it i probably the way i write songs is you know i don't know where a song begins or ends i usually have a little note here and a little note there and so i pulled from notes previously but that's what i was the headspace i was in that night and so shortly after he died i wrote most of that song and that's sort of where that song came from and then i played it i played it uh, at church in worship and um then i stopped playing it and then uh different worship leaders started to sing it and play it and then eventually it worked its way up the chain which is really funny (laughs) by the time i recorded it again 
I had stopped playing. I had to start playing it again because people wanted to, to hear it, you know. So I guess that was my first big break, if you want to call it that. But what was really interesting is most of my songs on my records were not worship songs in the traditional right. sense. I think maybe in the literal biblical sense or in in my mind, they're all worship songs in a, mm-hmm. in a sense, is, you know, depending on what you call worship. But in the sort of conventional sense, there weren't many, but after that song blew up, everybody was looking at me for more worship songs. And <laughs> I don't know that they <laughs> got what they were looking for, but right. Well, that, that leads into my next, my next question is, uh, did you kind of feel saddled with this expectation? Cause all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're known for this and other songwriters, I believe the David Crowder band did it. It was just one of those songs that just kind of just grew a life of its own. Did you feel, uh, as far as, uh, once you got to, uh, I guess, more of a, a, a major label of, of, uh, of sorts, did you feel that people had this expectation of you? Were you able to manage that? How did that? How did you kind of manage that expectation? It, it was there, but I, I tried to ignore it for the most part. Yeah. Um, my label uh, brought me on. I think they assumed I was going to like try to do that again. I don't know mm-hmm. that they realized that I was not even trying to write more songs like <laughs> How He Loves Like. I don't even know that that thought crossed my mind. And I always thought this way, like, I wasn't trying to write that song when I wrote it. So I'm just going to write songs. And if one happens to be that kind of song, then that's cool. But I also was so unintentional in those old days, which was kind of refreshing. I kind of want to go back, (laughs) (laughs) you know, to not knowing how things work. You know, that was it's more fun when I didn't know that people sit around and try to do that. And that's why, why that happens, you know. Like, I thought it was just like, oh, I'm a writer and I'm writing, so just write a worship song because yeah. that's how I feel. And I thought everybody did that. And apparently some people do, but I think a lot of people, I mean, maybe they're like me. They, they do that at first, and then down the road they realize, like, oh, okay, if I write this song this way, like, it's going to go well for me in this arena. And, you know, but... um so that was there. There's always that pressure. I think, too, like, I always thought it was like being struck by lightning, writing a big song. I also didn't realize that that could be formulized and utilized to my advantage, um, which I, st- I try and ignore that as well now. But <laughs> it's hard to unknow that fact, you know, that if you write a right. song this way, it's going to make, it's going to do better for you, or it's more likely to do better. There's no guarantee. But um, yeah, so I did feel that. I was like, man, I really do want a song that will open the door for these other songs. Um, But I never really tried to repeat that again, you know, and we even did co-writes. People asked me to come and do co-writes because all worship leaders and musicians, I guess these days do co-writes, you know, you hear about it a lot and I haven't done many. I did a few there at the beginning. I was like, this sucks. So (laughs) I was like, I don't know how you're feeling and you don't know how I'm feeling. I'm going to pretend (laughs) <laughs> that we yeah. understand what we're trying to sing about. But I think, too, those they weren't all bad. I think I was also younger, too, and I didn't understand the way collaboration can work. Mm-hmm. you know. But it is hard when you're... I felt I feel like I was bringing my B material, and they would bring their B material, and we'd create a C-level song <laughs> you know, <laughs> together. I know, I, I sound so cynical, but I'll do it again. It'll be good. Collaboration is uh, not bad. Not. But anyway, in the beginning, though, that's... I think people wanted me to come in and help them write a song like that. And I was like, well, I yeah. hate to disappoint you. That's just not, this doesn't work that way for me. Yeah. The whole music industry in itself is very interesting and, and can go the way of 
formula in a sense, trying yeah. to recreate, recapture the lightning in the bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of what exploded from there, and especially through the 90s, was this kind of business of worship and yeah, yeah. you know Hillsong and all this kind of stuff, which uh, I, me being, I mean, I, I lived, listened to punk rock bands. I was in hardcore punk rock type bands myself singing. So I was always, you know, side-eyeing kind of <laughs> anything <laughs> yeah, like yeah. mainstream. And then especially in the Christian industry, because uh, I was big on, you know, on the tooth and nail bands. And that's basically it, you know, and at that time. And just seeing this kind of big business kind of come out of the worship and then even like megachurches and, and things like that. Um, and what w- what do you think about kind of like th- that, the um, uh, th- this business aspect of Christianity? And, and I know, I know, I mean, this is a pretty general question because our views change all the time when you were obviously younger when you started and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're older and wiser and more cynical now, but <laughs> how did you approach that? Uh, I'm probably, I'm probably actually less cynical than I was a few yeah. years ago. Yeah. Okay. I probably went from kind of cynical to way cynical to less mm-hmm. cynical and more laid back. I think, Yeah. so I think it's a complicated question, but. Mm-hmm. Um, or a comp or a complicated issue, I should say. I think it gets a little weird when that first per- that first time you realize, oh, okay, like you know, I write a worship song, and then all of a sudden, um, it creates a lot of opportunity, and then you kind of want to repeat that in sort of the business American uh, capitalist idea of that is which I guess I'm not 100% against, but, you know, um, right. no, that yeah. is, you know, you do something, well, let's scale it up, and you get more of what you got the first time, and each time you scale it up, you get more. And that's cool, but the problem is when you get to a point where you're addicted to the money, you know? So there's nothing wrong with the money, I guess, but when you get addicted to the money, you know, so I think unwittingly I... I didn't get too involved in that, you know, so how he loves, I think most people, I don't know why I, I, I think I was just super idealistic early on, you know, um, which I think played into my advantage on the long run, you know, but I think a lot of people thought I was crazy, you know, like you write a song like how he loves that is a huge song. I didn't even know quite how big a song it was. Um, but it was a huge song. Like I, you could, uh, try to do that again. You know, you make a bunch of money and it creates a bunch of opportunities. You think, oh, I'm going to do that again so that I can get more opportunities and more money. But I, in my mind, I was like, that's awesome that that song has done so well because that affords me to do all the other stuff I want to do that probably doesn't make so much money. And so that was sort of the way I went about it. But what can happen is you start making the good money, you buy the bigger car and the bigger house, and your family gets used to things. Your wife gets used to a certain way of living and then you're like I have something I want to say that I think is challenging and you say it and you start to lose a lot of that stuff you know and so I think that's where it gets difficult when money drives or when commerce drives worship because uh, you know worship is the worship has to do with the way we think about God right mm-hmm. you know and so like the sort of this language we have for sorting out God things you know which is in my mind, a lot of what worship is is sort of sorting out God and faith and, you know, um, that kind of stuff. When that is driven by commerce, um, there's a danger there because if I have influence and I'm 
and I feel like I'm called to say something that is going to be unpopular, right? Mm -hmm. Then I'm tempted not to say that. So I think mm -hmm. what happens, you get this, um, this, uh, it's, uh, what would you call this? Like this echo chamber, right? Yeah. So it becomes more about, I'm creating songs for you that tell you what you want to hear so that you'll be drawn to sing my songs more in church, mm -hmm. you know? And so writing a worship song becomes more about how to be the least offensive you possibly can be so that you'll be played more, you know? And I guess that's music in general, if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, for the most part, I mean, you know, there are exceptions and things, but, you know, for the most part, I used to have a friend in the music industry played with like... um Elton John and uh, Sting and, you know, he's B.B. Uh, King. And, you know, he was sort of one of those guys who's in with, uh, you know, um, <laughs> legit superstars of right, right. days, you know. And he's written a bunch of songs from back in the day. And he's like, the way you, which this doesn't work anymore, but he said the way you write a hit song is the way you become president, not by being the best for the job, but by being the least offensive, which I guess that worked <laughs> until... Last year. <laughs> that that, that, <laughs> you know, that got burned to the ground. I know. I was like, well. <laughs> or or maybe he's right, and that's even scarier. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, but you know what I'm saying. And so, like, yeah. when commerce drives the spiritual conversation, like, it, it can get, I think it gets, it gets dangerous, you mm -hmm. know. But at the same time, like, I used to have this friend who was a teacher and, he um he had this other teacher that he used to argue with a lot, and this other guy used to try and argue the point that teachers shouldn't make any money at all. The teachers shouldn't be paid. They should do it for the passion because people who do it for the money are not right for the job. And I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's a terrible, terrible idea. Yeah. You know, and I think it's the same with music. It's the same with your doctor. Like, you know, there's certain things you don't want to get a deal on, like surgery or a parachute, right? Like, you want to pay full <laughs> price for heart surgery. You don't want to get a deal. You know what I mean? Like, and so there is an aspect of commerce that's not evil in and of itself. But yeah. gosh, the temptation is there and you see it. And I know so many people in, that, in those worlds. And I, I guess that's one of my biggest problems with people who criticize mega church and big church. And I'm not a big church guy. I don't go to a big mm -hmm. church. I'm not involved in a big church. It's not my scene at all. But I guess because of what I do for a living, I know so many of the individuals involved and, mo and so many of them are really great people, some of the best yeah. people, you know, super genuine, super generous. You know, they're obviously your, you know, people who are not like that in that world, but mm -hmm. it's not the rule. It's definitely the exception, like, you know, and right. so, and so it, I do yeah. have, so, but, you know, so I don't want to, I have a hard time just blanketly criticizing big church, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, because I know too many of the people involved who are, for the most part, really amazing people, you know. Yeah. And most of them feel the way I feel about commerce driving uh, sp the spiritual conversation. But it also is a really difficult thing to stop once it starts rolling. It's a very difficult thing to steer, you mm. know, I can imagine. And Yeah. yeah. So it's a, co it's a complicated issue. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, for sure. But no, it no, is no. a thing, though, man. I mean, it is a thing. Like, money really does drive the yeah. worship wagon and um and like i said like i used to blanket criticize mega churches um especially when i was kind of going through my 
you know, when uh, deconstruction or, or losing your faith is an interesting thing because, uh, like I've said in, I think, uh, one, of the la- one of last year's episodes, uh, we talked about mimetic theory. M- mimetic theory. I'm not smart enough to, p- to pronounce all this stuff correctly. <laughs> uh, and we talked about the, the, there's a grieving process that goes with you, someone losing, losing their faith or losing their, I guess, their, their worldview that they've held and kind of totally. They, there is this anger that drives you have to go through and mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of people will go through that and yeah the easiest target is these big rich churches mm-hmm. uh is people using commerce uh i used to i used to work for a, a christian uh, clothing company called notw um and you know it's easy They're, those are all easy targets but um what i've been learning is once you start opening up conversation with people and getting to know people especially people that you've kind of put this perception on mm-hmm. uh this, there's a whole new ball game and i do want to talk about this in, in a political sense uh in a, in a little bit but what but what i before we get to that i, I do want to ask um because there's definitely i've seen i because your, your early albums uh, your earlier albums I can definitely tell that you weren't trying to ride the worship train, which is when I first tried revisiting. I was like, oh, here we go. Because a lot of times <laughs> worship music kind of triggers some negative emotions yeah. from me now. I understand. And <laughs> I was dreading diving back into your discography. But when I did, I started noticing that, oh, yeah, there is some of that there. But there's another conversation going on uh, that John's bringing to the table with these songs. And I can tell that there's a, a more artistic approach to the songwriting. Uh, however, for me and my personal taste, the, I didn't really gravitate to any of those albums. Uh, uh, the new album, and I don't know what it is. I, I mean, the Mercury and Lightning and then going into the Mercury sessions and the Lightning session sessions. Uh, there obviously is a seismic shift in the songwriting. Mm-hmm. And totally. for me, especially with some of the lyrics uh, uh, regarding religion and... Um, Especially the song "Enemy Love," is fan is just great. And once and once I learn the background to that song through your commentary, it makes it even better. Oh, wow. uh, there obviously was some sort of seismic shift in your either perception of God or how you approach God. And I wanted to just uh, just kind of ask you if you can bring us through that. What what kind of change from the album previous to the albums previous into kind of gearing up for Mercury and Lightning? So my records are funny, at least to me. Like I'm so unaware of what's happening while I'm writing the song. Mm-hmm. Like, it's way easier for me to look back and be like, oh, of course, that's what was going on when I was <laughs> writing the song. But, I mean, I'm so, I feel like I'm so strange that way. That it's like, I have a I have a difficult time figuring out what's happening with me. Um, and me too. I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so writing songs, in, is a sense, is a little bit of a way to create a mirror and project how I feel out and then I can see the song and be like, oh, okay, I, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. So a lot of times people are like, what were you thinking when you wrote this song, Enemy Love? And I was like, I'm not really sure. But standing back and I look, I was like, God, I know exactly what I'm saying because I know exactly what was happening. I know exactly what I'm trying to say. But in the moment, I really didn't know. I didn't have a thing I was trying to – I didn't have this like idea I was trying to say. It was more like I was trying to figure out – why I was feeling the way I was feeling, you know, and projected out, you know, but the whole idea of the enemy and trying not to be an enemy to myself, trying not to be an enemy to my wife, trying not to look at the world as my enemy, not look at God as my enemy or, you know, trying not to become my own worst enemy, I guess is sort of, I mean, you, you heard the commentary there. And so 
Um, but I think, so while I'm writing the Mercury and Lightning record, is I'm really sort of going through the shift while I'm writing the record. Like the record is almost like an existential crisis in the making. Like it's almost happening while I'm writing the record, you know. So I think Borderland, the previous record was in a sense a little bit of a looking back or reaching back, you know. I think I've had this thing in my life where I like always trying to find this missing piece that makes mm-hmm. the, everything work, you know. And I, I love being older and being able to realize and being able to say, oh, okay, there's not a missing piece. There are pieces that'll help and there are pieces that help more and there are things that help, you know. But for the most part, it's about a flow and a movement, not about finding this one thing. Like, for instance, I don't mean to get too distracted, but like, I used to think I'll have this band will be the perfect band and it will never change and we'll all be in the band till we die and we'll all die on the same day when we're like 85, <laughs> 90 years old. But no, it doesn't. Like, there's always someone who's, you know, having a good day, someone who's having a bad day and then there are people that come and go and hopefully you have meaningful time with each of them during the process. But there's just no perfect scenario. Like, mm-hmm. So that's what I was dealing with with Borderland, I think, was still looking for that perfect scenario learning how to serve God perfectly or in mm. the way, you know, do the rain dance right to make it rain. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if I could do the rain dance just exactly. right, make it rain, say the prayer right, give the right amount of money. Like, and I didn't think that outwardly, but that was definitely what was going on inwardly. I kept trying these things. Maybe I need to be more relational. Maybe I need to do things <laughs> more like this, you know? Um, and then, so Mercury was really letting go of that you know, for me, it was more of turning that upside down and saying, okay, life is a little bit scary. Let's just like admit that and explore that for a while, (laughs) you know, like with the hope, with the hope that we embrace God at the end of it, you know, but, you know, I sort of allowed myself to say, hey, if I really believe this God stuff, I have to allow myself the opportunity to not believe it, I guess. You know, like you can't really believe something if there's if you're not allowed to consider the other option. And it's tough. It's tough, especially since you were raised Christian. A lot of people who are raised that way, you know, may bounce back and forth a little bit with, mm-hmm. you know, what can be you chalk it up to rebellion, mm-hmm. <laughs> rebellion, teenager, rebellious teenager. But yeah, but yeah, no, that it's I, I, I get what you're saying. And I, I, I think doubt is a very uh, important piece to the process. Yep. And the, the scary thing, too, is, and looking back on this, I'm like, man, this is so ridiculous. But, you know, when I'm 20 years old, I'm supposed to believe all this. Mm-hmm. And it's not supposed to change. And then people are looking at me. I'm writing songs and gets, giving messages in church and preaching in church. And I'm very young. And looking back, I'm like, I wasn't like a screw up, you know. Like, I was a pretty all right guy. I was like, but, man, I was so immature, you know, and I was like, why would I assume that my faith and the way I approach God and the universe like would stay that way? Why would I assume that I ha- would have it all figured out at that age when I didn't have, believe me, I didn't have anything else figured out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so like when you're sort of gained some sort of success or notoriety early on, people literally think that you have it figured out. You know, and it couldn't have been further from the truth, you know, like you're successful. So you must know God. Like there's a lot of successful people who definitely don't know God, you know, 
you know, <laughs> and so it is, it is, I don't know, that's difficult. And then people, you feel like afraid that you can't deal with your issues when really you, you have no choice but to do that if you're going to be honest with yourself. You know, unless you're just going to believe and be the same person you were at 20, and I'm almost 40 now, so to go 20 years of life without changing and maturing uh, seems uh, unrealistic and sad, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so that's all going on, and I think I'm conflicted, too, because I love church, and I love God, I love the idea of God, I love Jesus, I love the idea of Jesus, um, and, um, you know, but at the same time, I'm like, I'm... I, I can't swear to a lot of this stuff anymore. Um, you know, like, I didn't realize, I mean, I don't know. I, I didn't realize I was a fundamentalist. You know, I never would have used that right. term. And honestly, I didn't use the term evangelical, fundamentalist. I, don't, I just didn't think in those terms. I went to church, um, and, his, you know, I didn't really think about what type of church or what, it, what you called what I believed, you know. But I've definitely come to a place now where I'm definitely not a fundamentalist. But I'm pretty open to just about. I'm I'm pretty I'm open to God. I'm open to the right. Bible. You know. I don't think Jesus was a. I don't think Jesus was a fundamentalist either. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't think he was either. And here's the truth. And this has actually been the beautiful thing. It's like I really do believe in the Jesus way and the Jesus yeah. discipline. You know, and I mean, that's what it means to be a disciple, right? And so the beauty the beauty of it is I can be a disciple of Christ, and I don't really have to necessarily um, uh, subscribe to all this other stuff. You know, it's sort of peripheral in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I, so I think for me, I, I've sort of come to the place where I believe that faith is more of a physical thing. Faith is more about what you do with your physical body, you know, than than it is about theology and, mm -hmm. you know, um, and so I think I think that's where I sort of landed with the whole record is, um, gosh, I don't know what am I trying to say here. <laughs> <laughs> what I like about this this record um, is that I feel that you're presenting. Uh, ideas and questions, uh, even frustrations, but not from a negative or angry way. You're kind of just bringing stuff to the surface. And I, and I, uh, in, um, if you compare it to say, like I interviewed Derek Webb last year mm -hmm. and he's always kind of pushed some buttons in the fundamentalist circles, mm -hmm. you know, his whole career. But listening to his recent album, Fingers Crossed, you can, you know he went through some shit and he's dealing mm -hmm. with that shit yeah, yeah. like still and and, and there's totally. this um and, and there's this melancholy and like anger to it not anger and like hateful like a like a heavy metal band or something like that you know but there obviously is there's a push and a pull between uh faith and frustration uh, and, and is, and there's, there's a wrestling there and you get that from his album, which is great for him. And, 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 um, and it's a, it's an amazing, amazing album. Um, but with your, uh, your, your album, you're exploring this kind of stuff and this kind of wrestling with faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, 
I don't know. It's done for me is done in a more healthy way, more laid back way. It represents your, I think it represents your personality. Yeah. yeah. You do come across as a very laid back person <laughs> who's kind of dealt with yeah. uh, kind of changing worldviews uh, in, in a way that's kind of more just chill. We're just mm. going to kind of go right. Yeah. And, um, but what I, what, but back to the song enemy love um, and, and, and the story behind that with you realizing uh, you, you're suddenly having bouts of anxiety yeah. um, and not really knowing where that came from. And I, I find that very fascinating on how, um, on how you deal with that because like, for me, I'm a very emotional, fly by the seat of my pants, wear my heart on my sleeve type person. If I'm having a existential crisis, everyone, everyone around me is going to know it. Totally. <laughs> I was wondering if uh, did uh, did did anyone around you kind of notice? Hey, something's a bit off with uh, with John here. And did you have any kind of uh, conversations about faith and and everything with with those around you? Uh, and, and questions like what was your support system like kind of going through I guess your you know your kind of um, deconstructing of, of your worldview no I have some very good friends around me some of them who've gone through very similar things and I think what's really interesting is that um, a lot of people deal with anxiety and um, you know and after I started talking about it with my friends it turns out they'd all had similar things you know I had one friend who was driving and had to pull over, you know, and, and you know, and call someone to come pick him up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and these are all like super healthy people, you know, like they've got good families and jobs and responsible people, you know. Um, and I just think that um, people don't talk about it enough, you know, like I think yeah. people don't. I think people pretend like that stuff isn't supposed to happen, but I kind of feel like it happens a lot, you know, especially when you reach certain phases of life where I've got kids and I got finances and I got all these responsibilities, you know, all sort of happening at the same time. So I also tend to be a pretty emotional person. I can be laid back, but I'm, I can have pretty big mood swings. Like I'm definitely got the artist temperament. You know, like, <laughs> I don't mind showing all of my cards, you know, right. almost in an right. unhealthy way. I had to, as I got older, I realized, okay, this is, it's, it's not fair for me to, you know, I used to think I got to be total honesty all the time. Tell them how you feel. If they're offended, if they're only, if you're, at least you're being honest, you know. But then when you get older, you realize some people just are, they can't handle like every. Thing that I could possibly drop on them at once, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, for your kids, for instance, like if you're struggling with finances, if you're like, oh man, if something doesn't come through, we might lose the house. You don't really sit down your kids and be like, well, listen, guys, uh, just to be honest with you, we might lose the house. You don't do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that's the extreme, but you don't do that with people either, especially people yeah. you love. You know, you don't use them as a means of, you know, so anyway, I've tried to learn not to do that. <laughs> but I, but people know when I'm going through something. I think for me, it's just hard to know what I'm going through a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's taken me some years to sort of step back and be like, oh, I'm tired. That's what's happening. I haven't slept much. You know, it's like you're having a crisis and you haven't slept more than three or four hours the last few nights. Like, you know, you're not having a crisis. Like your body hates you. Right. And you're basically drunk. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> if you don't get a certain amount of sleep, you're basically drunk. And so... 
you know, I've had to learn those kind of things. Like, oh, you're tired. Oh, you're sick. Um, you need to eat something. You're mad. You're not mad. You're hungry. You know, that kind of stuff. It seems so dumb, but it's like really a big part of life, you know, is, is becoming more self-aware. So, yeah, people knew what I was going through, and people were pretty cool. I think the toughest part, though, I guess getting back to just not dropping things on people, is, you know, some people look to me, and they don't, it's not really fair to them, you know, to sort of like, just because I'm going through a crisis doesn't mean I got to, like, drag them through my crisis, you know. Yeah. So, it's a little hard on my wife, too. She's like, she's like, I always look to you as the person who knows what's going on spiritually you know you're the strong person spiritually <laughs> and she's like if you're if you don't know how you feel about stuff she's like what am i supposed to think you know she didn't like that yeah no i'm um this is so funny i i, I discussed the same type of thing with michael gunger um in the in the last the last episode and uh it's it's this is something that i didn't realize married couples went through this and and this is great yeah. for me to hear especially because her and I have sorted of through that stuff, but it definitely, I dropped the bomb on her, and I, I mentioned this in the last episode that I, I didn't believe. I, I thought that uh, Jesus raising from the grave was more metaphorical, <laughs> not actually <laughs> happening, and and that was the bomb drop that I was like, man, I shouldn't have said that. And with Michael Gunger, he told his wife that I don't know if there's a God anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh man, I know that. And unfortunately, our hard. wives get the bombs dropped on them. I know. <laughs> First, you know. I know. I think for me though, the t- the tough part so. Here's the hard part about deconstructing for me. Mm-hmm. I think is how far am I going to deconstruct? Right. You know, like, all right, well, I'm going to say God is a construct. Of con- I, we've constructed this idea of God. All right, well, let's just break down all constructs, okay? And if you take it all the way down, this is where you get, you're like, all right, I am a construct. What is my consciousness? So it's pieces of things put together that I think of myself. And then you get to this point where you're like, well, if I'm a construct and God's a construct, then he's as real as I am, so God's got to be real, right? <laughs> you know, I start doing backflips like that. <laughs> I'm just like, I've just deconstructed and resurrected God. I've just lapped myself. You know what I mean? I've just totally, I've atheisted myself back into the faith, you know? Yeah. Like, I've just totally. <laughs> but I guess, but the tough part for me is like, I used to pray a lot, and I used to pray the wrong way, too. Not the wrong way, but selfish prayer. And I actually think selfish prayer is okay, you know, like, because you have to have a place. They say complaints go up, right? It's like, am I going to drop my stuff on my family, you know, like, or am I going to take it to a higher power, you know? Mm. What's healthier, you know? But I would go and I would pray, and this has been the this has been the most interesting thing. I would go and I would pray for things, and then I would pray for weird things that don't matter just to see if God's paying attention. <laughs> that sounds so dumb, and everyone, every theology person, would be like, "That's like that's literally wrong." That's, that's like that's fantastic. Isn't Jesus in the wilderness? Quote: "Don't test the Lord. Right? Uh, don't t- test God." You know? It's like I mean I don't know. I would pray and like. My prayers would almost always be answered. Almost always. Even some of the most meaningless stuff. Like, I remember thinking, I was really young, you know, this sounds really immature. I mean, and it probably was, but, <laughs> you know, um, I grew up and one of my favorite shows uh, was uh, Lois and Clark. You remember Dean Kane and yeah. uh, Carrie Hatcher, Terry Hatcher. 
Terry Hatcher. And I remember like for a while, I was like, man, Terry Hatcher hasn't been in anything big in a while. It's like, I wonder if her career is over. Because I noticed that with actors early on. Like, do a big mm-hmm. show. And if you don't do something big soon, it's like, they forget. You know what I mean? It's a small community. I was like, yeah. When I was young, I was like, I thought she was real classy. I thought she deserved. So I would pray that she would get in another show and she would have some sort of big career. This sounds so dumb. I understand it sounds <laughs> no, dumb. Okay. And I'm just, I'm just and throwing it all out there for just me totally honest here. You know, and within a year, the uh, Desperate Housewives show, which I've never actually seen an episode of because I could care less yeah. about the premise of the show, like, absolutely exploded and made her like a way bigger star than she ever was with the Superman show. But like, I have a, like a long list. It's not like this random things. I have a long list of stuff like that. So I've got to feel like either one, there is some sort of God out there listening to me or number two, the universe is just really, really trying to make me believe that there's a God. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I know, look there, there's no sort of, and this is where it gets hard for me, you know, talk about, what about when you pray someone for someone when they're sick and they die anyway, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And so that's difficult, right? That's really, really difficult. Right. But everyone that Jesus healed died eventually, <clears throat> you know? It's sort of like, I had this, so I'm going to get real heavy here. I had this friend who died of cancer. And so he had these super charismatic parents who prayed and did all the, I don't know what your um, experience is with charismatic. I grew up charismatic, so they pray a lot, pray for healing. My dad, it's his favorite thing. It's what he lives for, right? And so, you know, he he was supposed to die at, um, he's supposed to die before he was two. And he, Mm. you know, and he ended up living to be, um, you know, he he ended up, you know, then he lived past two and he was supposed to die by the time he was five. He lived past five. It kept going on like that. The doctor said he wouldn't make it. So I mean, he died at 24. I think mm-hmm. he was 24. He's in his early 20s. And I was so mad when he died. I mean, I was so mad. So mad at God. It's like I thought we prayed and he answered prayer. And why would you heal him over and over? And I had this moment, this moment where I realized like, oh, crap, I'm asking the wrong question. I'm asking them, like, I'm saying, why did he die? Why did he die? Why did he die? And I just had this moment where either God or the universe sort of pushed me back in my mind. And for a moment, I realized, like, I'm totally asking the wrong question. The question was never, why did he die? The question was, why he lived? Hmm. You know? And right. so I realized that I was like, oh my God. That is not just true for him. Like, he's not supposed to live to be two, and he lived to be 24. So, like, the fact that he lived to 24, I was mad that he died so young. But I should have been, like, just absolutely elated that he lived to be as old as he did and that we got the time with him that we did, right? And then I, like, then then it went even further to me, and I realized, like, actually everything is that way. I was like, and so, you know, I stopped asking why people die i stopped asking about why there was suffering not because it doesn't exist not because it isn't there but because it's just totally totally outweighed by everything else in fact like death is only so bad and suffering is only so bad because life is so good you know that's the only reason otherwise we really wouldn't care it's sort of just be yeah we just run our course like it would be more like well the 
tomato bushes. Like we got good tomatoes this year and have to chop them down and plant some more tomato bushes. And there's no like sadness or grief in the tomato bushes. Mm. You know what I mean? I was like, but it's because life is so good. So like, I'm working through all this while I'm writing the Mercury Lightning record. Like I'm seeing that like God is definitely not like my ideas or my container that I created for God is just does not fit the God that I am seeing while I'm writing this record. And it absolutely is pissing me off. Hmm. It absolutely is, is sending me for a loop. Um, but at the same time, I'm wrestling with these other things. Like, why is life so good? Why do I get prayer? Why are my prayers answered? You know, like, why does the universe seem to work in my advantage? Why does the world play in, in you know, <laughs> in yeah, my yeah. advantage? Like, why does, why does it, things happen for my good? You know, like, it's yeah. just yeah. such a mystery to me, you know? And so, I can't st- sit here and say, like, I have this evidence that God exists. I have this proof. But it just sort of seems that when I project my body in the direction of God and in the direction, when I apply myself to the Jesus discipline, like, God, the world just shines for me, yeah. you know? And it'd be, I mean, yeah. and I go through some heavy, heavy stuff, too. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't make life um perfect by any stretch you know sort of like pain is unavoidable you know so for me it's not like it it's not like my faith um prevents me from suffering but Mm -hmm. it's sort of like you can either suffer in life or life can be like utter hell you know what i mean and so like suffering is inevitable but my life doesn't have to be utter hell you know when i throw myself into the jesus discipline and you know and i have faith with the way I approach the world physically, mm-hmm. um, it just most of the time seems to work to my advantage. You know, yeah, but yeah. I can't, it's hard so, to put uh, that into words. I mean, it, but it doesn't mean I don't have my doubts. Those, <clears throat> yeah, you know. So I guess what I'm saying, Mercury and Lightning, is I sort of like, well, which record am I going to make? And I was like, ah, oh, crap! I'll just make them both (laughs) you know what i mean it's like i am full of conflict let's take all my conflict and let's put it out here on this record and let's let people just freaking wrestle with it you know what i mean well and and that's what i love about it because that life is conflict life yeah this the human struggle is ups and downs struggle conflict love grace peace anger it's mm-hmm. all of that and uh, and I, I believe you, you you captured it in a in a way that really resonated with me um you keep mentioning uh, you know the jesus discipline yep. and, and um i wanted to know like for you like what uh what does that mean to you you know what is it about jesus and what is that discipline that you're that, that you're uh describing well i think that the um i mean the sort of classic um answer to that would be you know love your neighbor as yourself, you know, um, things like forgiveness, things like don't let anger go, but so far before you, Mm -hmm. you know, um, those type of things. And from what I see, I think that it's, it just seems like a better way of, of life. Like loving your neighbor is not like, um, the magic. So like, I grew up thinking loving your neighbor was the magic. If I love you, 
and do good things for you, then God will bless us all, right? <laughs> but I actually think it's more like this. I think the blessing is in loving my neighbor. Like, if I love my neighbor, then the reward is like, oh, my God, I get to see another human being and have compassion for another human being. You know, I get to um, experience what it means to um, have fellowship with another person, you know, and forgiveness is the same thing. It's sort of like um, it's kind of its own reward. You know, forgiveness is a lot like um, and I dealt with piles of unforgiveness in my life, mm -hmm. you know, and just the days after the days when I am <laughs> the days when I am in unforgiveness are terrible days. They're terrible days and days when I um, can let go of that are great days. You know, and so for me, it's yeah. like it's so basic and yeah. I think it's supposed to work, you know, like <clears throat> Richard Rohr says sin is what doesn't work, you know, and I just hate the word mm -hmm. sin. I, I mean, yeah. maybe there's a place for it, you know, but to me, it's sort of there are these magical things to do and magical things to don't do. And if we don't do the magic things and we do do the good magic things, then sort of the all the magic is going to make life great but i don't think it's quite like that it's not like doing the rain dance and holding my legs just right and then god's gonna i think it's the other way around i think that god's yeah. in all of it and that you sort of operate within that structure and that's why i really believe the you know the laying down your life for your brother is is the better way to live like it's just yeah, actually yeah. better you know yeah. um and maybe it's impractical you know but i just think there's something about it that is um is the better way to live yeah that's what i that's what i found because i used to think that i wasn't uh living right i i was involved in too much sin i was watching the wrong things doing the wrong things being with the wrong people and um through through my own journey here i've seen um that the path of grace and love and forgiveness has worked for me and 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 uh and even just recently uh, having that patience and forgiveness with other people I don't agree with. And here's where I want to bring in the, the tribalism conversation because these past couple of years have just been, uh, just been insane. And I noticed on, on Twitter, you did put something out there about tribalism yep. and, and I'm not going to, you know, it doesn't matter who you voted for, who I voted for, whatever, how I've noticed that in my own conversations with people in my life that I don't agree with, um, I've found that if I have patience and forgiveness with them and listen to their side and present my side, uh, we've had a better conversation and a better relationship as opposed to each of us trying to change each other's minds. Um, and I don't know if we need to go through this tribalism period <laughs> Because tribalism is another word that I've been hearing a lot. I know. It's lately. almost like and, done, you know. Yeah. Um, and it, I'm almost like, and I mentioned this on a, a couple episodes back with my my old friend Josiah Hesse. <clears throat> He's not a believer. And um he um so what what I had mentioned was I, you know, what if the whole uh this whole political climate and this the past election and uh the Trump years, you know, what if those were <laughs> It's crazy for me to even say. Totally. What if, what if God intended this to happen so we can go through this and deal with the tribalism <laughs> problem in our country? I can't believe I'm saying that I agree that maybe God let this happen. Mm, totally. Uh, 
I mean, let's just be honest, though. He will let some shit happen, though. <laughs> you look at the world, man. <laughs> there is definitely... There's definitely something to learn. Definitely something to learn. I mean, I wish I was smarter and more well-read than I am. Than a, <laughs> I, too, I can support my <laughs> hypotheses with more, um, with more weight than I have. But, you know... In a lot of sense, um, I think technology has a lot to do with it. Um, you know, like when you think about, oh gosh, and I don't want to compare it to this, okay? I'm just going to use an extreme example here just to just to sh- prove a point, but good grief, please, I don't want... <laughs> I'm really not <laughs> trying to bring this into our current conversation, but it it's the best example. You think about World War II, you know, mm-hmm. like what Hitler did was not really different than what people have done throughout all of human history, right? They were afraid that they would be, they were afraid um, and, and they were intimidated from the outside world as after World War One, they were defeated and the people felt defeated and the people were afraid, you know, and so when someone stood up and looked strong, they thought, well, we'll fight fire with fire and we will, um, if we win first, then they can't beat us, right? And that's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a way oversimplification, but that's that's kind of the way it happened, right? Well, that's not that's not um, uncommon. In fact, that's super normal. But what made World War II so different is that the technology existed for them to do that on a scale that was that had previously not existed. Right. 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 The bombs and planes and gas chambers and, you know, like 100 years before. I mean, I know there have been massacres throughout history, but, you know. Right. Yeah, no, have no, a lot the, of people with a lot of weapons swords. Weapons of warfare. Yes, totally. Technology yeah. has increased all that, definitely. Totally. And then, you know, of course, we dropped the bombs, you know, and so ended the war, I guess. But it sort of created an awareness that, like, okay, we need to get our head around this technology or it will – someone is going to use it to kill everybody. Okay, mm-hmm. well – once again, a super extreme example, but <laughs> I think you have a similar thing happening now. Okay, so we have advertising, and the technology basically exists to advertise to you. Facebook, Instagram, social networks, television, it's nothing new. Like, I mean, I have advertising on my shirt. <laughs> you know, like 50 years ago, people would have been appalled that we'd walk around with ads on our clothes. So, like, what are you, what are you, a billboard? Like, yeah. we don't think it's weird, but, you know. But people would have looked at us, I mean, my hat is advertising, you know, we're advertising. (laughs) But advertising by nature exists, the way I see it, advertising exists to create um, anxiety. Produce Advertising produces anxiety. If you don't have what I'm offering, then your life is not going to quite, whether it be on a small level, like on these new Bluetooth headphones, because this cord has given me a lot of anxiety, or a little bit of anxiety, less anxiety without the cord. Life is going to be... But you create... But I never thought I didn't need a cord. No one told me that headphones without a cord, that, that you know, until mm-hmm. I saw it. And it's like, oh, God, I've got this cord now, and it's driving me nuts because I'm so used to headphones without a cord. Right? <laughs> and so advertise, create, create this anxiety. And so you have all these people that are so full of anxiety. And if you don't believe it, go look at the Twitters, you know, and you go down to, you go out into um, the rural areas and you run into people that I know, country type people, not even country, they're still intelligent people, but they're full of anxiety. Immigrants are gonna take our jobs. Um, You know, this is, you know, they're they're got this anxiety that's been created so that they will support a, a thing. But then you're in the city and you have the same types of things. You know, you're like, you know, 
Trump's, you know, uh, Nazi sympathizer and, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not a Trump supporter. I, I don't like Trump. I didn't right, vote for him. Right, I won't. Right. I will vote for whoever runs against him in the next election. OK, and I'm pretty much a conservative. <laughs> well, I'm a cons- I don't know what I am. But you see what I'm saying? Okay, so here's my point about tribalism, is you're creating all this anxiety, and what's happening is people are are um, rallying together and bonding together over their corporate anxieties, right? See, people, so you have this Christian, uh, Christian with a little c tribe of people who are, they feel like their values are being undermined, is that the word undermined? Yeah, undermined, under you know. I think so. Then they they see the world. They they have this anxiety that the world is going in a really terrible direction, based on what they were taught or led to believe is the right way the world's supposed to be, you know. And so they're trying to hold on to that, and you see them trying to hold on to that. And I, I guess this is my point: is that tribalism seems like it seems to me like the invitation the jesus invitation is the invitation to step out of tribalism Mm -hmm. right or step above it to transcend it not to eliminate it because i don't know that that's even possible but i feel like when you're a baby your world is about you you have not the ability to see anyone else you know you're hungry you cry you're mad you cry you know um when you get a little older you have brothers and sisters hopefully friends you sort of start to see like okay if you share they'll share and the world is better when life when things go good for both of you things go good for everybody right and you get older and you start to you know see you know your neighborhood and your school and your city and you want things to go good for you You want your football team to win you know i want your team to win because it's going to be good for your town you know and and then you see your country you want your country to do good but then there's a point where it's like um can we actually transcend beyond that? You know, can we see beyond that? You know, and so it's been, I feel like much of Christianity, which I think should be an invitation to step out of tribalism, we use as an excuse to become heavily tribalistic. Even the, mm-hmm. um, you know, well, if you join our team, you will not be eternally tormented in the afterlife. If you join our team, and man, it's a good team to be on. You know what I'm saying? It turns into a sales pitch. You it know? does. It does. <laughs> and sort of like, and, that, and I, the comment today was like, what's greater, the greatest commandment or the great commission? Hmm. You know, because churches are built by the great commission, you know, mm-hmm. but people don't change a whole lot if they're not um, committed to the greatest commandment. And sometimes those two things seem to be at odds. Mm-hmm. You know, doesn't you know? I mean, this is this is one of my favorite Bible verses as of recently. It's the one where Jesus says, um, "Be perfect as my Father is perfect." Right? And I always grew up thinking like, "Oh, that means like, don't sin, don't look at porn, don't lie, don't cheat on your taxes." You know what I mean? Like, I just think "be perfect" was a holiness thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and I also grew up in sort of that charismatic world where holiness was yeah. the like the magic thing, like. Get that prosperity. You Do it. I know. Be holy, it and it's, be holy and it's all going to click, right? Get that holiness. Gold dust totally. from the vents. <laughs> Get the holiness. <laughs> but like, but uh, people see that verse and they forget the uh, the adjoining verse. It may even be in the same sentence. It says, 
See, causes the rain to shine, rain to fall, and the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. You know, and what Jesus is saying there is, he's like, I'm inviting you into a situation. He's like, it's easy to love people who are like you. It's easy to love people who look like you. It's people to love. It's easy to love people who are in your family. It's easy to love people who go to your church, or if you're not a churchgoer, it's easy to love people who, if you're an atheist, it's easy to love other atheists. You know, it's easy. That's easy to do. There's no reward for you in that. There's no transcendence there. You're small. You're still very small, even though it is a challenge to love even those people. He's like, but you're still very, very small. He's like, but if you want to grow bigger, if you want to transcend, he's like, can you love people who don't look like you? Can you love people who don't believe like you? Can you enjoy the company of people who disagree with you? You know, and to me, that's what I love about the Jesus way is the invitation to step out of that. And it just frustrates me to death watching all these people just beg everyone to just get back in the club. You know, mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know. There are good things about being involved in the club. You have a lot of friends and people look after you. They bring you dinner when you have a baby and they come right, see right. you when you're on your deathbed. And if you're sick, they bring you soup. That part of the club is great. But the part of the club that wants to, you know, um, beat everybody else up who's outside the club or leave everybody out of the club. Like that part of the club is ugly, you know, and to me, not very Jesus like anyway, I'm a conflicted person. Hey, that's, I mean, (laughs) you know, but, 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 but that's real. And and that's what I feel like. Um, the church has done a bad job of embracing the conflict mm -hmm. and letting people be conflicted Totally. in the church and ask those questions yeah. and uh john i i we got to wrap up yeah man. man thank you so much for this conversation yes really thank you it's wonderful appreciate it um so you're heading on a tour uh everyone go to is it john mark mcmillan.com yes john mark mcmillan.com check out the tour Perfect. dates this fall september Perfect. october um i'll put that in the show notes and definitely check out uh the the album um Mercury and lightning, but also, but also the, the Mercury sessions and yep. the lightning sessions. Those are just fantastic. Oh, thank you. Uh, I almost like those arrangements better than the, <laughs> the full album. I don't know, but I'm, you know, that's me. I like, you know, like I'm, I'm rocking like the face to face came out with an acoustic album and I'm rocking that. Like <laughs> maybe it's just my age. I'm just, uh, I don't know. No, I, dude, I hear you. I feel like people are split more, right down the middle. Some yeah, people love no. one or the other. So it's fun to do both, you know? <laughs> Well, that's awesome. Uh, and the commentary, I really, that's, that's a fantastic. I was just, uh, I'm going to, I'm just keeping to keep on going. I'm always like, I gotta go. And then I'm like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's all but, good. uh, the guys in the band, the agony scene, uh, they're a metal band that I, you know, hung out with the, the guys were from Tulsa and o- Oklahoma when I was living there and hung out and they, they had to do a commentary for their album and they're like, what do we talk about? We don't know. <laughs> you know I mean, so hearing your commentary being so thoughtful and bringing storytelling into it was just fantastic. So I oh, want to, because normally I skip all that, the skip the commentary, <laughs> but um, I want to encourage people to listen to it because it's great, man. The, the storytelling you use on each of those uh, little tracks is just fantastic. Oh, so, thank you so much, man. Uh, John Mark McMillan, thank you so much. And I hope to see you on tour uh, someday when you come through Southern California. Yes, definitely. I know. (laughs) Unfortunately, we're not making it out this year, but next year for sure. Would you like my savior king? You came to me. I'll admit that I not always had eyes to see. I would like to thank John Mark McMillan for joining me today and being my guest had a fantastic time 
during this conversation with him, and I really hope I do get to, to talk to him again very soon. His album, Mercury and Lightning, as well as his EPs, The Mercury Sessions and The Lightning Sessions, are available on all streaming platforms. He's also on tour right now through October, so head to johnmarkmcmillan.com for concert dates near you, and you can grab physical copies of his music there. I'll make sure I put those links all in the show notes. Next week, Lisa Gunger will be joining me to discuss her book, The Most Beautiful Thing I've Seen. So please, in the meantime, grab her book, give it a read, grab the audiobook, give it a listen. You will thank me later. And uh, so excited to be able to talk to her on the next podcast. If you have a story or perspective you'd like to share, the invitation is always open. You can drop a text or leave a voicemail via the Armchair Philosopher hotline, 951-723-5586. If you'd like to discuss any of these episodes or anything with me online, go to Twitter at the AXPX. You can also become a patron saint for $1 a month You'll receive bonus material and have the opportunity to discuss each episode in a safe environment. Find all of our social media links and all back episodes over at theaxpx.com. Music on this episode by Candle Park Stars and John Mark McMillan, all used by permission. Thank you for listening. I will talk to all of you next time. Bye-bye.